Hi, this is David Poland, and this is the hot button number 16 for the love of personal filmmaking. Through the month of October, I've been overwhelmed with 14 in-theater screenings and one premiere, quote-unquote, online. Some have been better, some worse, but what has struck me after a year of endless conversation about the financial realities of the film industry going forward is that almost every single one of these films has been born of a very distinct personal vision. And whether we love or hate or stand somewhere in between on these movies, this is something we should all be thrilled about. The biggest scale personal film in this period would have to be Dune, Denis Villeneuve's intimate epic, and the smallest would have to be Sean Baker's Red Rocket, which is has the closest things to a movie star in the film being Simon Rex, a charismatic guy whose primary claim to fame before this was betting Paris Hilton and Jamie Presley and getting fired from MTV for being in two quote-unquote solo masturbation films, though not being, as his character in the film is, a porn star. It's easy to classify Red Rocket as personal because it is small in scale and features non-actors and semi-pro actors. Sean Baker is a filmmaker making his fifth film about normal people who are living on the edge of the mainstream. Denny and Dune are harder to put in that pot with a $200 million budget and a ton of CG and a famous book and top-line actors, but I would argue without restraint that the fingerprints of Denny Villeneuve are unmistakably on every single frame of Dune, even in the grand homage paid to other films like Lawrence of Arabia, Apocalypse Now, and Star Wars. In both cases, to sit in front of a movie screen, dwarfing your home screen, and to be immersed in these visions of these two directors is a powerful experience, whatever your like or dislike of the material is. Not everyone is into the political machinations and the coming of age of a boy who might be the one in space. And even fewer will be happy to watch a middle-aged ex-porn star and junkie try to drag himself off the cement and reemerge with involvement of an under-18 girl. But that is not the point. Amongst, I am sorry, it's just not. Amongst my favorite experiences in the window of intimacy were Mia Hansen loves Bergman Island and Mike Mills' Come On, Come On. Again, these are filmmakers from whom their audiences expect this kind of intimacy, but both bring a universality to the experiences that would capture the hearts of much of the vast audiences who aren't seeing their films, especially on the screen. Many would love these films if they could just get past the awkward need to market the films. As it happened, Hanson Loves Bergman Island landed in the same period as an HBO remake of Scenes of a Marriage, which inspired me to watch Bergman's original scenes, available on Criterion Channel in its full made-for-TV form, as well as a 2010 doc by Marie Nairad called Bergman Island, also called Bergman Island, like this movie. And it's also on the Criterion channel. As rich, deep, rich subjects do, they all fed one another. Hierarchy aside, Hanson Loves the Film took me someplace that other films did not, as was their choice. Tim Roth and Vicky Cripps bring a simplicity of humanity to their work, almost always, that is just astonishing, and Hanson Love manages to reflect on Bergman's work while never leaning in it to the point of kitsch. It didn't hurt that I was already on a journey with Tim Roth via Sundown, the fascinating Michael Franco film that I saw on stream from TIFF, Toronto International Film Festival, in which he plays a man seeking space from his life in Mexico. Franco is another rising star filmmaker who is fearless as he works through some of the most fearful experiences of human life. Come On, Come On is not as moody as Bergman Island, but it is deeply reflective. Mike Mills, who is known as an artist, though this is his fourth feature in 16 years, and none of them have arrived under the radar. His first film, Thumbsucker, premiered at Sundance with Keanu Reeves, Tilda Swinton, and Vince D'Onofrio amongst the cast. This film is about a man and a boy in a moment. The man is played by Joaquin Phoenix, and he is a high-functioning lost boy weighed down by his past. The nine-year-old boy is played by Woody Woody Norman. I want to say Woody Herman, but it's Woody Norman. A child of distinct intelligence and kindness, taking away 
for the moment from his mother, who's raising him, Gabby Hoffman, and his absent genius broken father. In a month or so on the road together, uncle and nephew will feed each other's deepest unknown needs, surprising themselves and each other. It's a beautiful film, shot in black and white and loaded with non-pro young people who are being interviewed about life by the uncle, who's a radio producer. It is the best kind of road trip movie, and while I will surely watch it many times on my TV, the experience of the film in a movie theater with the lights down and a lack of distractions allowed me to experience the intimacy of the work, at least for the first time, in a way that will never be as rich at home. There are better be of still unmentioned Oscar hopefuls in this month's filmic journey in alphabetical order. I'm going to list them, and then you'll hear about them. Belfast, Serrano, The French Dispatch, The Harder They Fall, The Last Duel, Spencer, and The Tender Bar. Each of these films is clearly a work of love by each filmmaker, and there's so much value in that, even if the films don't quite land. Not all of them. The one great film for me in the group is The French Dispatch. It is relentlessly Wes Anderson, like a sauce cooked down to its absolute essence, no compromises at all. Now, I don't blame you if that flavor is too strong or too twee for you. This is a nature of taste. Everybody has a different one. And I would not argue if you said that one of the segments was clearly stronger than the others and that the film chooses to close with its least spectacular effort. But I found delight from start to finish in the experience of the brushstrokes, even when the moment was not in full blossom. Alternatively, there is The Harder They Fall from James Samuel. It's his first feature, though he did a 50-minute short Western in 2013. And you can feel Samuel's enthusiasm for the Western, the racial, and the music in this work. It is, in many ways, a remarkable piece of work. The ambition is seething. And I loved watching the great cast, which also happened to be almost entirely black, in a Western. But where I lost my faith in the work was in consuming the overall stew, not in the individual flavors. When Mr. Samuel makes his third or fourth film, it may be a masterpiece. He will not only up his skill set, but will have more, a more gentle hand on the knobs of the thing, not pushing from the top of the energy to the bottom over and over again. More like a roller coaster, less like a mousetrap. Please. A filmmaker who's had a lot more time at bat than Samuel is Kenneth Branagh. His first film, Henry V, offered a sense of him possibly being one of the multi-hyphenate greats of all time. He has had a remarkable career, more behind the camera than in front in recent years, but still much success and quality. In Belfast, he tries to offer up his own heart, and the result is a good film. But is it great? Well, on the first level, Branagh suffers by comparison. Steve McQueen's Small Axe, just last year, John Borman's Hope and Glory and The General, Neil Jordan's The Butcher Boy and Michael Collins, Paul Greengrass's Bloody Sunday, amongst many. But what really struck me about Belfast is that this is actually the perfect representation of Mr. Brana. What is lacking, if you feel something's lacking, is what is lacking in the man. For some reason, what comes to mind, I don't know why, is the old story of Olivier and Dustin Hoffman. Why don't you just try acting, son? He is, as an actor and a filmmaker and a human, very charming and smart and interesting, but he is not a pain guy. One does not get the feeling he is plumbing the depths of his soul for his work. He keeps a distance. And while there are those saying that Belfast is from the kid's point of view, so it's not as painful, I'm not buying it. There are many beautiful, wondrous moments in the film, but I wanted to feel more. And still, I was comforted by the thought that this is who Brana is, so I appreciate that deeply. Spencer is another film that only this filmmaker could have made. Pablo Lorraine is the film. He could have made it with found footage, and he would have found a way to express what he was trying to express. It is also the main reason why I don't think Kristen Stewart is likely to win Best Actress here. It's the same kind of non-problem problem with Natalie Portman's performance in Jackie. 
The movie is so much the director, there is never a sense of ownership by the star. Spencer is a very specific flavor of film. It is high kitsch, but it is also like a classic silent German expressionist film. Lorraine's statement couldn't be clearer, but in his vision of Diana Spencer, she is not a Barbie. She is very much an old school printout cutout doll with endless new outfits to put on and take off. At one point in the film, there's a shot of Diana in her changing room, one of many, and she is clearly suffering the humiliation of being the object as an issue, uh, as an object, and there's also the issue of who, what can be seen in her windows, and other people are chewing over this. And it struck me in that moment that Stuart Spencer needed to simply drop her garment, and the camera needed to move up over her entire body and capture every inch of her naked self, flaws and all. And it wasn't because I wanted to see Kristen Stewart's vagina. It was because I f that's what I felt Lorraine's filmmaking was screaming for. Even though it was never an option, obviously, for a real-life movie star to indulge, proof of human of being human, real, not just an object, in that moment, it just screamed for it. Of course, had he done this, there would have been a giant wrestling match over whether exposing her was objectifying her in a different, perhaps worse way. I get that. But sometimes you just need to go the whole Judy Chicago. And if you want to find out about Judy Chicago, look it up on Google. Uh, Jackie had the shocks of other characters dealing badly with JFK's death. All Spencer really had in that regard is our thoughts about Lady Di and how she must have suffered. And I'm sure she did. But a gilded, diamond-studded prison, tough sell in 2021. The movie I really want to see is the Fantasia of Diana meeting up with Mikey of Red Rocket. Now that tandem would deliver shock and awe to the world. Cyrano is a movie about a man in love with a girl, both on screen and off. Peter Dinklage is a brilliant Cyrano. And Joe Love's right of this Roxanne has now bore a movie and a baby. I'm always happy to see Wright's work as he pushes the envelope and himself. Sometimes he hits, sometimes he misses. But I have learned over time from the work and the man that this is quite intimate. And actors follow him into the breach because they feel that intimacy. My first deep dive into Wright, like most Americans, was Atonement. And I still remember being enraged by that oneer that he pulled off across the beach of Dunkirk. I hated it. But it distracted me from the intimacy of the other moments of the film, which were actually truly exceptional. I've since found my peace with his bravado as a filmmaker, and I look forward to it. The music in Cyrano just isn't magical for me, and, and as such, distracts from Dinklage's performance, which should have been earth-shaking. The Last Duel, that movie had a, an ambition of the very personal. Three perspectives on a rape. But in the end, all three perspectives were too simil similar. And all the good acting in the film, though Affleck is atrocious in this movie, playing a role that he could easily kill in, but he doesn't because he doesn't want to show us how close to home some of the negative traits might be. That's my feeling, at least. Um, and with all the master filmmaking by Sir Ridley and the amazing team that works for him, none of this could put Humpty Dumpty back together again. One piece of advice. If you're going to show an audience a rape of a woman they like and admire twice, there better be a good goddamn reason. The Tender Bar is a, a Clooney movie, George Clooney's movie, all Clooney heart. Obviously, it's not his story, but it is that warm, looking back at your wacky family feel that has made us love movies over and over through the decades. Okay, there's not a bad performance in the film, but as pleasant and heart-first as it is, it just doesn't add up to much. It's nice. I know that's damning with faint praise, and I, I don't really even have a suggestion of how I would try to improve it. I'd really need to see it again for that, too. But it has the feel of a number of COVID projects that came together because it was pleasant and it was a small cast and a small crew and it could be made and therefore 
and everybody could work together before there was a vaccine and everybody would spend time together to be lovely and be good and yeah. Just not, not as big as the sum of its parts, unfortunately. Um, I should mention before I go, Halloween Kills. David Gordon Green is a rebel. He made this movie. He is looking in every nook and cranny in his work. Sometimes it's very commercially that he's considering things. Sometimes he seems completely disinterested in anybody ever seeing it. But he's a very grounded guy, and though I have not confirmed this, I am still dead convinced that Halloween Kills, the middle movie between the reintroduction of Laurie Strode and the finale in which Michael Myers finally dies forever, or at least for a decade when they reboot him, was outlined and almost completely improvised. I look at the location, the actors, the non-actors, the things that make no sense in the context of this series, and I think David just let them have at it. He gave Jamie Lee Curtis a strong actor, Will Patton, to work with, even though he had to make up a whole new arc for this guy to be in the movie. And the speeches, madness. Just shooting three or four takes and cutting the best one in the film. What the hell? Go for it. Judy Greer can improv. Anthony Michael Hall is going to have to go to the dentist to get the scenery out of his teeth. Everyone, he's upstairs. Start running. Wait, he's outside. Start banging on the windows. That's what I, I think they did it like a, a silent movie. They just kind of told them what to do as they went along and everybody just kind of improvised and they grabbed the best stuff, which is very David. They even decided to kill Michael McDonald, who's an improv guy, along with Scott MacArthur, a comedy guy who's a friend of theirs from the Gemstones, another David Gordon Green, Danny McBride family project. So I see this as a very personal party for David, which was guaranteed to make money. So why not? Not every personal passion project needs to have, end up saving the universe like Dune. Sometimes it's just making the movie where you get to flex your muscles because why the hell not? And with that, until tomorrow.